0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi to the New Books Network. This is Nathan Moore, your host on the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing Skylar Bayer and Gabby Serrato Marks about their book, Uncharted, How Scientists Navigate Their Own Health, Research, and Experiences of Bias. Welcome to the show, Skylar and Gabby.
1: thanks for having us.
0: Yes, thank you. What led you to explore the personal experiences of scientists in your book, Uncharted?
1: Um, I guess I can start. I usually talk about how our book project began. But um, uh, one of the things that I do is I am a producer for the nonprofit, The Story Collider, Uh, I've been doing it for, I guess, on and off for almost a decade now. And uh, back in 2018, I told a version of a story at a Story Collider Producers Retreat. Uh, We produce um, storytelling shows about science. And I told a story about uh, when I was in graduate school and I had been diagnosed with a heart condition um, that basically didn't allow me to scuba dive anymore, but I worked in a scuba diving lab. And I had a particularly lonely day one day, but some fishermen came along and made it better by giving me a bucket of hot water, which doesn't sound very um, eventful, but it was really important to me at the time. And uh, the producer, sorry, the executive producer of Story Collider, uh, Aaron Barker is a friend of mine, suggested that uh, I get together with Gabi, who'd recently told a story for the Story Collider um, about being disabled and working in science and maybe we should go do a project together or something. And so we connected and we decided we wanted to hear from lots of people um, who'd had uh, different kinds of experiences being disabled or chronically ill in science. Um And that's how we got started. We even bought a book called How to Write a Book Proposal. (laughs) And we had a couple of calls for pitches from various people. Um, We also sought a few other people out as well um, to create the collection that is now Uncharted. So that was five years ago. And now we're here with it published.
0: Can you describe the process of selecting and approaching scientists to share their stories for this project?
2: Yeah. Um, we went about approaching scientists by primarily looking to Twitter at first, um, and then seeking out people who had written recent pieces or told stories for the story collider or any of those types of other outlets that we could find. And we ended up doing a call for proposals. I think we actually did two and ended up selecting a lot of different stories from that process and then From there, moving forward, some people weren't able to contribute or we added a few new people. So it was sort of a fluid process, but we really started with social media, which was very cool.
0: How do you guys envision your book contributing to the broader conversation within the scientific community?
1: Um, I can start and then maybe Gabby might have something to add, but, you know, we really wanted to add these stories of um, disability uh, in science and how it intersects actually with a lot of other identities we often talk about when we talk about diversity in STEM um, that just weren't being talked about a lot. And so now there's this book out there that people can point to and uh, maybe connect with or Uh, start understanding other perspectives in the community. Um, So it's really a starting point and it's a book to get conversations started uh, more about disabilities and STEM, not necessarily like the one and only book. Um, Yeah. Gabby, do you have anything else to add?
2: Yeah. um, Within academia right now, people with disabilities are really underrepresented. Uh, The figure, depending on who you ask or what source you use, um, is about 20% or more of people have disabilities in the general population. But when you look at scientists, that drops down to about 2 or 3% if you're looking at people with PhDs. And that's not the only way to be a scientist, but it's the only measure that we have right now. And so I'm really hoping that this helps more people either be able to be open about having a disability or to be able to continue in STEM if that's what they want to do to make sure that they um, have all the opportunities that people without disabilities have. Hoping to increase that percentage a little bit.
0: Were there any commonalities in how scientists approached their own health or did you find a wide range of perspectives?
1: Um, I think that One thing I really love about this collection is how diverse scientists were in their experiences of their health. Um, I think that there was a lot of commonalities in terms of coming up against um, barriers in their stories um, and having to uh, be resilient against those barriers, whether they're in medicine or professionally, they're not getting the kinds of accommodations um, or infrastructure or institutional support that they need to succeed as a scientist. Um, and I think in some stories, people didn't prioritize their health for a while or took it for granted and then realized mm-hmm. that they um, couldn't anymore. Uh, there's a lot of those stories. And then there are people who have always had certain challenges um, throughout their whole life and had always prioritized um their health or their or managing um the world with their disability uh and so it wasn't necessarily new when they went to grad school or became a scientist.
0: Can you provide examples um about personal health challenges and how it impacted scientists' ability to contribute to their own research?
2: Mm, yeah. There's a lot of different examples. Uh, I think we could start with one being something that you might not be able to see. So a non-apparent disability being something like a traumatic brain injury. So someone who has had a TBI um, might have headaches or migraines or light sensitivity. They might have trouble tuning out different sounds or with auditory processing, that type of thing. So we had one story where someone's lab environment was really inaccessible, and it became a challenge to do any research just because the the building in the lab was so painful for them to be in. Um, So they weren't able to be, well, they were still productive, but they were not able to be comfortable while they were productive. So that's one example that I think we don't hear of a lot of times. Um, And another would be mental health, which is one where people might be able to show up to their work or to their graduate school exam, but at the end of the day, they are feeling really, really down and depressed or potentially using substances. And some of those stories, again, wouldn't necessarily show in lab, but they are challenges that people are facing, sometimes very alone, which is difficult
0: what surprising or unexpected stories related to scientist health did you find
1: um i think that's a good question i suppose it's surprising to to us maybe but maybe not surprising to people with those conditions but i i think i'm going to go with the unexpected uh part or I guess new knowledge that I learned is one of our contributors uh, Alma Schrag um, identifies as deaf and she has a series of vignettes in her story it's really beautifully done and one of the unexpected aspects of her story is um, in the field she ended up cultivating a lot of support with her workmates um, sort of around her disability finding effective ways to communicate Um, And it wasn't really an issue at all, and they became pretty close, whereas in the scientific conference realm, which was sort of the other set of vignettes in her story, she really had to work really hard uh, to get any support and any accommodations she needed just to access the material. Um, And so it was really a story about... um, infrastructure and in support of other people making or breaking a situation and not necessarily about, um, the disability, uh, hurt itself. And i I really enjoyed that. That's one example of, of many in our book.
0: What about the intersectionality of identity? Um, did personal identity and creating a more inclusive scientific community come up in your research?
2: But yeah, definitely there's a lot of intersections of identity that are discussed in the book. Um, one that really sticks out to me is one of our contributors, Sarita Nolan, who is a Black woman. And she experienced a really painful medical procedure and talked about how her race and her the, the provider's perception of her might have impacted their treatment. And so that was a really painful one, both emotionally and literally painful. Um, So that's one where it becomes extremely obvious that there are these intersections. I think there are more subtle ones too where a lot of our contributors are queer, part of the LGBTQ community, and it's not necessarily um, that the experiences of being disabled and being queer aren't necessarily exactly the same, or probably are not exactly the same, but There are a lot of overlaps and ways that people have to, you know, quote, come out or tell people about either being queer or having a disability and navigating how people react in those instances, that type of thing. So there were a lot of intersections. I think everyone has some type of disability identity at some point in their lives. So that was very interesting to see.
0: Can you share examples of strategies scientists have employed to mitigate biases and to promote objectivity in their work?
1: Um, that's a good question. And I think the word objective or objectivity is always really interesting to me because because there's really no such thing. (laughs) But um, I think we can become more objective when we acknowledge that we are human and we have our own biases. And, um, you know, we look at everything through subjective lens. Um, But I think that there's a lot of great examples in the book of our authors being really um, clever and and uh, strategic in how they plan their workout to um, enhance their productivity. So there's a number of uh, of our authors who have conditions that tend to affect their energy level or limit their ability to be in a building, let's say, like the example Gabby mentioned earlier, um, or some other aspect, and they develop these really amazing strategies and ways and and plans that make them extremely productive for the short amount of time that they are doing their work. Um, Unfortunately, in a couple of these cases, uh, this is not appreciated (laughs) by um, supervisors. I can think of at least one example um, of this, Emma's story, where even though she's really productive, she's not in the lab as much as other people, and she's really criticized and judged for it because um, in that lab environment, what they really value, apparently, is how many hours you put into the lab. Um, so sometimes even with these strategies of being more productive, being an efficient scientist, they can still be judged based on perceptions of what they're spending their time doing. Um, and that's really a cultural issue that we need to tackle in science. I don't know if that fully answered your question. Um, So (laughs) Gabby and I can follow up a few more sub-questions for that one.
0: Can you address the role of awareness of bias in shaping scientific processes and outcomes?
2: Yeah. um, I would say that our approach to awareness of bias comes from these personal stories. Uh, And there's a lot of research that shows that when people hear personal stories or experience things themselves, they're much more able to see biases and also to understand and feel empathy toward people. So um, when there is bias, it can have a ton of different outcomes, but we see one way to mitigate that being through personal stories. Um, Some of the potential impacts of bias, for example, against disabled people, is that biomedical research might not be focusing on the symptoms or conditions that people really who are experiencing those conditions would want them to be focusing on. Um, For example, if you're looking at a mental health condition, they may be trying to treat a specific emotion when in reality, people are really struggling with fatigue. Um, there's a lot of different examples like that. But I think once people become more aware or, for example, are able to use the patient perspective more, um, that they're able to do better research and do much more impactful research.
0: Can you highlight instances where scientists' personal experiences directly shaped the tra- trajectory of their research in unexpected ways.
1: I think, uh, a lot of our stories are, um, <laughs> are like this. I think a lot of the stories that, that are most like this are, are folks who had, uh, diagnoses or accidents or whatever, um, m- mid or early career, um, I can think of one uh, story in particular by Taylor, and she talks a lot about how her own struggles with mental health um, and racism um, and fadism and uh, all these sort of cultural dynamics um, that she was exposed to, both, both positive and negative, but she does mention a lot of the negative, shaped her research interests in psychology and neuroscience and the kind of uh, research that she wanted to do to address issues that related to her own mental health and the own and um, mental health issues that she observed in her own community. Um, And I think, you know, that wasn't necessarily something she expected. Uh, And there's a a number of examples like that, I think, in our book. Um, But that's one that comes directly to mind.
0: Were there personal experiences that challenged the objectivity of scientific inquiry in the stories you explored?
2: Sort of similar to what I said before, that I think it makes research better when we involve more perspectives. So when people are able to bring in their own experiences, that that not necessarily enhances the objectivity, but it enhances the scientific inquiry overall
0: how do you see the integration of personal narratives impacting the way we understand and engage with scientific research? For example, scientific research in a lab only.
1: So I think like we mentioned earlier, um, you know, objectivity is really hard to, to be as a human. We all have our own biases and personal stories. And so I think um, coming to terms with our own biases and um, our own personal narratives and other people's personal narratives and their perspectives and acknowledging those and coming together can create, I guess, overall a more objective environment where we can um Conduct better science, like Gabby said, uh, a diversity of perspectives leads to a diversity of questions um, and ideas. And that's what we really need in science um, to ask better questions, more relevant questions, deeper questions, even just fun questions. Um, And if we have the same people always asking the same questions, always with the same perspective, we really lose out on a lot of greatness that science can bring us. Um, So I think acknowledging those different perspectives and biases and stories and and welcoming a diversity of experiences um, and ideas will make science a better place and more productive.
0: What were some of the most significant challenges faced by scientists in the stories you encountered, and how did they navigate those challenges?
2: A lot of the challenges that people face in these stories are really systemic, and some of it is bias, like we've been talking about. Some of it is from policies or just the culture of science. Uh, That seems like no matter where you go, there are some aspects of scientific research that are super pervasive, like Skylar mentioned, always look expecting people to be in the lab for a certain number of, to- of hours uh, or any other sort of potentially toxic work environment. Um, so a lot of the challenges that people face are not related to their personal health, but it's related to what they encounter. Um, so the environment is disabling to them, for example.
0: Do you have examples of coping mechanisms or support systems that scientists relied on during challenging times?
1: Yeah, so I think this is a great question. And we even have an entire section um, in our book um, uh, about helpful shipmates because we have a nautical theme to the whole book. Um, And a lot of people find support um, in their friends and family, uh, sometimes colleagues. but often friends and family uh, to help them figure out how to emotionally get through things, how to plan things. Um, I think there's a, there's a chapter by Richard Mankin about how he grew up, he grew up before the Americans with disabilities act. So he was lucky he was able to even attend school actually with his disability. Um, they often kept kids like him at home and he talks a lot about planning and planning for planning and having all these backup plans to make sure everything goes well, um, and also to really work together with other scientists as a team. So I think that's actually one of my favorite themes that comes out in this book with support systems is um, really, you know, being able to lean on your network um, and, you know, you support them as well. Um, but, but having those people that, that strongly uh, surround you and support you in times of need.
0: Outside of scientists themselves, how can other individuals or institutions actively contribute to create a more equitable and supportive scientific environment?
2: I think people can start by just learning more about disability and about different intersections of identity. Um, There's a lot of times when people think that disability is inherently tragic, or it means that there's something wrong with the person who has a disability, when we're trying to really reframe that to show that there is a lot wrong with the world that we live in, but it's not our bodies or our minds that are the problem. Um, I think starting with learning more about those personal stories like we keep harping on um, can really help to be a first step toward making change. And then I think after that, people can advocate for marginalized marginalized communities and look at ways that their own privilege comes into practice. It doesn't matter if you're a scientist or not. Uh, There's a lot of different ways that privilege shows up. And so even if people are outside of science, um, I think everyone has a connection to science that they might feel excited about. So finding ways to combine your interests with science or with STEM um, might be a way to get involved into the STEM community and make change there, if that's important to you.
0: How did the process of collecting and sharing personal stories impact both of you personally as authors?
1: Um, I can start, and uh, Gabby might have something to share. Um, I have been helping people create and edit personal stories for uh, almost a decade now, <laughs> uh, usually around science. And so I'd been doing it for a couple Of years before I started this. And this is one of my favorite projects because I really felt like I got to learn a lot about um, these 30 people that were willing to share really personal stories in a book, which is asking a lot. And they, Working with them was so much fun, learning about what they really cared about, uh, learning totally new perspectives on science fields, on what it's like to have a certain condition or disability. Um, And it really made me appreciate to everyone's individual voice when they were writing these pieces and trying to help them um, tell the best possible version of it as, as editors
2: For me, there were times when it was really painful to be reading people's stories of struggle within academia and seeing that no matter where people were in their careers or in the world, that they still faced similar frustrations Um, and seeing that it's such a big problem that no one person can solve. Um, In some ways, it made me feel a little bit powerless or definitely frustrated seeing these negative experiences, but it's also really balanced out by some of the positive experiences and the pride that people have in their identities and their communities. So it ended up being positive, but there were definitely some emotional moments in the process of editing the stories.
0: Based on the insights gained from your research, what advice would you offer to scientists, especially those in the early stages of their careers?
1: I think this is a good question, uh, and Gabby might have something else to add, but I would say someone in the early stages of their career should really um, find community support, um, not necessarily just in science, but in your hobbies and your family and friends, um, finding people that you can relate to, because that is just so important as a human being. Um, and science sometimes can be a lonely endeavor, especially if you end up in an environment that's not very supportive, like some of our authors. The other thing I would say, though, is to seek out those supportive scientific environments. Um, If you're thinking about going to graduate school and you want to work with a particular advisor, it's really good to get a sense of them, not just from talking to them, but also their students and former students Um, learn about what resources are available at those institutions, whether it's human resources, whether they, um, you know, treat health concerns or disabilities very seriously. Um, and try to find an environment that is going to support you and your needs. Um, That's what I would say.
2: I would recommend that anyone who's interested in a career in science also study other things. I think like a liberal arts approach can be really, really beneficial and would make STEM and the STEM community stronger overall. If more people were interested in history or policy in addition to their STEM research. So I wouldn't pigeonhole yourself too much into just learning about science, even if those are the classes or the subjects that interest you the most, that you might find other interests that will help you become a stronger scientist or healthcare provider or whatever it is in the future.
0: What should scientists do to balance rigorous research with self-care And maintaining their well-being
1: yeah there's that word rigorous (laughs) there's actually a lot of debate about whether or not that's a positive or, or a negative word i think right now um in academia but uh i think that research can be really good without being done all the time you know i personally as a scientist have found that periods of rest for my brain doing other activities i try to do a lot of um, athletic pursuits, especially walking around the woods. Um, And then sometimes I pair that with pretty intense periods of work that are relatively short, but they're really productive. Um, So I think like in order to produce good research and good work and anything, you need to take care of yourself. And that includes like your mental health and, you know, other aspects of your well-being, whatever it is, whether it's social, physical, Um, And honestly, yeah, you can't produce good or excellent or great work without taking care of um, your needs first, usually.
0: As we look to the future, what changes or improvements do you hope to see in the scientific community concerning issues of health bias and inclusivity?
2: I think we have a long way to go on all of those topics, so I think right now my expectations are very low, so any improvement would be really nice, but... Long term, I would love to see less underrepresentation, so more adequate or correct representation of all marginalized groups within STEM, both in the workforce and within students. So that would mean for disabled people that about 20% of scientists and STEM students would be disabled. Uh, I'm not sure if that is a level that we'll ever get to for any marginalized group, but I think that the scientists and medical providers should reflect the communities that they are serving or within which they're working. So I'd love to see more representation. Um, And I think there's a long way to go also in terms of righting some of the wrongs in terms of research or scientific racism that has happened in the past um, and continues to happen now. So I think there's a lot of progress that can be made there also. We have a long way to go.
0: Are there only positive transformations that you see in the future for health bias and inclusivity, or do you see negative transformations happening?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I think there's always the threat of more negative transformations because of political atmospheres, right, going on. We're heading up into an election um, and people making decisions at the administrative level for universities might not always be interested in inclusivity, but maybe they are. And so it really kind of depends on who's in power and what decisions they're making. I think on a more individual level, um, Some of our authors, we have a couple of anonymous authors and they're anonymous for a reason. And that's because they're really concerned about what would happen to them professionally or maybe even personally if people knew who they were. Um, We have three anonymous stories and it's to protect them for their safety. And so we're still not at a point where everyone feels comfortable sharing um, all their details about medical or disability or even you know other aspects of their identity um because they're worried someone's gonna hurt them or threaten them or judge them or ruin their career or something so uh, i still have a long way to go like gabby said earlier
0: can you guys discuss your writing process for uncharted
2: yeah um The way that we approached the writing process was primarily starting with the authors themselves creating stories. So they created story drafts, and in some cases, I should actually back up and we started with a conversation um, where we spoke with the author and maybe they came up with bullet points or a couple of short sentences about the story that they might want to tell. From there, we went on to a full draft. And in some cases, that was several years ago that those drafts were first written, um, I think four or five years ago even. And from there, it became a process of drafting back and forth, iteratively editing, iteratively editing and also finding ways to order the stories. That was kind of our next process. Uh, we wanted to make sure that there was a flow or a... Uh, connections throughout the book so we worked on that and then finally we worked on the introduction conclusion and some of the intros to the chapters in the sections so really started from the stories and built the rest of the book around there.
0: What kind of things do you have planned in terms of either doing seminar talks or appearances about uncharted? Are you going to be making appearances at universities or anything?
1: Um, we've done a few podcasts like this one. And I gave a seminar at the NOAA Central Library because I work at NOAA, the National um, Oceanog- uh, Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And actually, uh, the library there has decided that Uncharted is the book of the year for 2024, which is really exciting. Um, I've given a couple of small talks on it and I've done, uh, one bookstore event. I think Gabby has done one as well. Mm Uh, I don't know if I'm missing anything else, Gabby.
2: I think we are looking for more ways for the authors to share their own stories also. So because our names are on the front of the book, we have some things to say, but we really want to find more opportunities for authors to share their own experiences as well.
0: Any final thoughts for the New Books Network on the impact you hope Uncharted will have on readers?
1: Um, We really hope people will read it. Uh, One thing we didn't get to mention earlier is how we structured the book. We have a nautical theme going on because both Gabby and I have spent some time at sea. um, And so the book is arranged in six sections that relate to stages of a nautical journey. Um, We decided that was a much more interesting way to thematically group the stories instead of um, by condition or some other career stage or something. So we think that people will really get a lot out of it um, in terms of the narratives. And we also have a lot of discussion questions at the end of the book um, for book groups or classroom activities or, or just talking amongst friends or family.
0: What about you, Gabby?
2: I think we covered the vast majority of it. Uh, we're really excited to have more people thinking about disabilities and equality and equity in science. So, appreciate the chance to talk to everybody.
0: Great. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Skylar Bayer and Gabby Serrato Marks for discussing Uncharted. How scientists navigate their own health, research, and experiences of bias.